Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you happen to be in the world and at whatever time. This is the Doc Bryant Show, and I am your host, Doc Bryant. Why, Doc? Because I was a United States Navy, United States Marine Corps combat corpsman for six years, and that is the name that they call us, and that is the name that is tattooed on my soul. Today we are continuing the series that I began in the last episode, episode uh, 40, season 2, or 240. And that series is a series on Christianity, what Christianity is. For those of you who do not know, I was actually a preacher, a pastor of a church for about 15, 17 years. And uh, so I know my stuff, and I study this stuff. And I know that that will come as quite a surprise to those of you who knew me back in my military days, but it's true. Anyway, uh, the as I pointed out in the previous episode, Christianity is under what in this country is an unprecedented assault. It's not unprecedented in the West. The assault uh, was very much the same in Europe and in Canada. And the way that the assault works is the weapon of choice is the pride community. It comes as no surprise that a community who's actually named after the biggest sin, supposedly the biggest sin in the Bible, pride, is the movement that is being used against Christianity directly. And the way it is being used currently, their current strategy is that they are going to redefine Christ. They are going to create a counterfeit Christ and, by extension, a counterfeit Christianity. They are seeking to redefine Christianity so that they can then point to actual Christians and say, see, these people are an aberration. They do not preach acceptance and tolerance like Jesus did. And so we need to silence them because they are preaching hate speech. It's a good thing, at least for the moment, that we have a First Amendment in the United States that can protect us. However, another thing, the best thing that can protect us, and more importantly, much more importantly, folks, protect the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we have the Bible, we have the records, and we have people who study the Bible, who know the Bible, and can teach the Bible. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what I took a break from uh, years ago when COVID shut down our church. And it looks like that's what I'm going to be doing for the uh, foreseeable future, because this, uh, this salvo uh, from the left, this assault on the truth of the gospel must be answered. And you also out there as Christians are responsible for knowing this information. I have said multiple times that the number one job of a Christian, a true Christian, is prayer. 
And that is true. We need to be praying. And we need to be praying hard that the Holy Spirit will flood the United States and will push back Satan. Because as it states in the Bible, when you resist Satan, he will flee. But another part of resisting Satan, another part of your responsibilities as Christians is to actually know what the heck you're talking about. The reason that, that all of this is important is if they can create a counterfeit Christ and by extension a counterfeit Christianity, then they will be able to lead astray even those Christians or those people who call themselves Christians who don't really know what's in the Bible. They don't really know why they're Christians. Maybe their family has gone to church for generations, and so they think, well, I'm not Muslim, I'm not Sikh, uh, I'm not uh, Buddhist, I'm not Jewish, so that makes me Christian. I'm, 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 a, I'm a person whose family has gone to Christian church for years, so that makes me Christian. That is not what makes you Christian. And that's another point of why I am teaching this stuff, is so that you will know, A, if you are a Christian, and B, if not, how you can become a Christian. I've said this multiple times, too. The saddest words that I have ever heard in my entire life are, gosh, I hope I'm saved. Well, I hope you're saved, too. I really do. And getting saved is not really that hard. Well, it is hard for some people, but we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Again, getting back to the problem with the counterfeit Christ. The counterfeit Christ and his counterfeit message is that basically everything's okay. You can do whatever you want to do as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Now, what's really scary about this message is that it mirrors the message of witchcraft. Look up Wicca, W-I-C-C-A. Look up Wicca and see what their motto is. Their motto is, do what thou wilt, but hurt thou none. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a contradictory statement. You cannot do whatever you want and not hurt anybody. No person is an island. And one of the messages of the Bible is that if you sin, you are not only going to be hurting yourself, you're going to be hurting those people around you. That is what sin is. The counterfeit message of Christ is that there is no such thing as sin. Go ahead and do whatever you want. It incorporates moral relativism in there. And then this entire concept that you can do whatever you want and it won't hurt anybody. So it slightly appeals to people's um, uh, whatever good nature a person might happen to have. And so it's, it's a really sweet, good-sounding message. But the message of the Bible is quite different. Go back to episode 240. In episode 240, I gave a brief synopsis of the Old Testament, which is very important that you understand what came before Christ so that you understand what he does. And then you will understand what comes after which is also extremely important. And it looks like the way that I'm going, I'm going to be re-preaching my series on Revelation, although that may take some time. Because um, I'm doing the Gospels first, and the Gospels 
again, very important, but you have to understand that the whole concept of the Bible is that God created us. He created us with free will so that we could decide of our own volition whether or not we were going to follow him, to have a loving individual relationship as a child does to a parent, as a child does to a father with him, or are we not? You see, again, you have to have free will in order for love to exist. You cannot have true love, real love, without free will. And so he gave us free will. And we sinned against him. We disobeyed him. We obeyed instead Satan. And in obeying Satan, we put ourselves under his dominion. So God, who knew all of this was going to happen, had a plan in place to deliver us from Satan's dominion and reconcile us back to him. So the, one of the main important points of this message is that sin actually exists. There is such a thing as right and wrong. This is another thing that I have frequently talked about, especially in social media, is that reality exists. If reality exists, then truth exists. If truth exists, then good exists. Then right and wrong exist. And if right and wrong exists, it only makes sense that one would want to be on the side of right. Along with this, if objective truth exists, then there must be an objective truth giver. Objective truth cannot exist without a standard by which to measure it, and that standard is reality, and that reality is God. And if there is a creator God, it really, really behooves us to know who that person is and what he wants for us. Why did he make us the way he made us? Why did he make us individuals? Why didn't he just make us a bunch of robots? If he wanted to be worshipped, he could have made us a bunch of robots to just worship him all the time, but he didn't. He made us distinct individuals with our own free will, each of us, which means he must want to have a distinct individual relationship with us. So how is he going to reconcile us? to him? Well, he talks about that in Genesis at the very beginning. He said that I will put enmity, he was talking to Satan at this time, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and that he will, or her seed will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. So he was telling Satan right then and there that through the seed of the woman, you are going to be destroyed. And I am going to bring about my reconciliation, my redemption of all the humans who want to be redeemed. 
And that's the next point that's very important. If you don't want to be redeemed, if you don't want to have a personal relationship with your Creator God, you absolutely 100% have the right to make that choice. But like everything else in life, when it comes to bad decisions, you do not have the right to the freedom from the consequences of those decisions, which is also something that Christianity addresses. You see, this fake Christianity talks about there's no such thing as right and wrong. You can do whatever you want. Jesus was accepting. He was tolerant. By the way, none of those terms, not a single, not acceptance, not tolerance, anywhere in the Bible is actually attributed to Christ. Not one of them. This is stuff that they're making up. But because it is true that Jesus is love, they equate tolerance and acceptance with love as the same thing. They are not the same thing. They are not the same thing. Just think about if you're a parent and you have children, uh, is, uh, is your love of your child, does that let you let that child go and do whatever they want? Play with matches and gasoline and sharp knives and, and, and do dangerous things because they want to? A little child, are you going to do that? No, you're not. Not if you truly love that child. If you truly love that child, you are going to give that child boundaries. You are going to keep that child within the boundaries that it is able to handle. And then you are going to slowly raise it to the point and allow it to kind of stretch its wings until you know that it is going to be an adult that makes good decisions. You want to know anything about this? Go to the book of Proverbs. That's what the book of Proverbs is about, or at least the first third of it. But we're not here to talk about Proverbs, folks. We're here to talk about the Gospels. Now, I told you that between the last prophet that was given to the people of Judah, that was given to the Jews, and the, oh well, I'm sorry, the, the last prophet in what we call the Old Testament. And the next prophet that came, that was also technically a prophet of the Old Testament, was about 400 years, well, over 400 years. Uh, a more exact uh, timeline I have heard is 460 years. I don't know if that's exactly correct. But 400 years. That the Jews had not heard a thing. But they did know, because of the prophecies of Daniel, that they should be expecting a Messiah. And they knew from other prophecies also because there were a lot of prophecies about the Messiah, tons and tons of prophecies. Depending on who you ask, depending on the commentarian, depending on the theologian that you ask, the number of uh, Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament ranges from a little over 300 to 400. Um, and in uh, one particular case, Alfred Edersheim uh, said that there were at least 456 passages in the Old Testament that referred to the Christ. 
So, and that's one of the things that, uh, that is important about our first gospel. Our first gospel, Matthew. There are four gospels, the first three of which are called synoptic gospels, um, because they are so similar. The last one, uh, John, is, uh, it comes at the life of Christ from a very different viewpoint. Matthew writes his gospel to the Jews. So it is filled with references that they would understand from the prophecies that came before to uh, uh, and explaining how these prophecies were fulfilled through Jesus. And again, you've got roughly, you know, over 300 to 400 plus prophecies in the Old Testament, uh, all of which, or most of which, your average Jew would be uh, familiar with. The reason that they would be familiar with them is, at least the men, if you were being raised as a boy in the Jewish times, you were raised to at least memorize uh, the Torah. And uh, that would be the, the first five books of the Bible. You would We would memorize that and have that memorized. And we'll get into uh, the education of young men a little bit later because that too is important, is very important in this story, uh, in Christ's life. However, again, getting back to the, the cultural, political situation of the time, um, like most people, the Jews who were expecting this Messiah, they were expecting this Messiah at about this time, and they were expecting, uh, because of the prophecies, that this Messiah would liberate them from oppression. Now, again, like most human beings, they were thinking very short term. They were being very myopic because the oppression that they were suffering at the time was the oppression of the Romans. And also, some of the prophecies said that the Christ would uh, reign on David's throne over the entire world. So obviously, this meant that the Messiah was going to show up, the Messiah was going to kick out the Romans, lead the Jews in a rebellion against the Romans, and kick the Romans out, and then take his place on Davidic throne and rule over the world in place of the Romans. That's what they had in their heads. That's what they were thinking. That's what they were being told by their spiritual, so-called spiritual leaders, the Pharisees. This is what they had been told for 400 years that this kind of thing was going to happen. And when it came to the prophecies that talked about how the Christ was going to be rejected, he was going to be broken, he was going to be abused, etc., etc., they, they took a more esoteric view. And they were like, well, we really don't know what that means. Maybe that means that's what the Gentiles are going to do. But we're the Jews. We are the chosen people of God. So we certainly wouldn't do that. We're too smart for that. So 
the person that we have to look for is a is a very learned person, perhaps even a Pharisee like ourselves, but at the same time a great warrior. And and that's what we're going to be looking for. And so that's what they were looking for. Indeed, I maintain that that's actually what Satan was looking for too, because I have told you multiple times everything that happens in this world is a result of what is happening in the spiritual realm. And one thing that Satan has been consistently good at throughout the entire history of the Bible and the entire history of the world is underestimating God. And in this particular case, and and the thing that really gets me that I, I just don't get is God has a long history throughout the Bible of using underdogs and using the person who appears to be, from a worldly viewpoint, the least likely to be able to accomplish the task. And we're going to get into that too. Now, the Gospel of Matthew serves as a really good bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's its purpose. Again, it was written to the Jews and to explain to the Jews how Christ, how Jesus, fulfills all of these um, prophecies. He's trying to bridge 400 years, and he's trying to convince the Jews who have been told for 400 years a massive lie how what they have been told is wrong and how Jesus is right. He starts off his Gospels, his Gospel, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. He goes through Christ's genealogy. Now, if you're like me, you find the genealogies of the Bible really boring. Not just kind of boring, really boring. But genealogies are an important part of the Bible. They're, they're very important. That's the reason they're in there. There is not a single word in the Bible that is meaningless. Every single word has meaning. The Bible, as I have said before and I have pointed out in the last episode, is not just a collection of a bunch of neat sayings and so on and so forth. It's not like Confucianism. It is not like the Quran. This is a, a book that tells the same story, a contiguous story, all the way through. And that contiguous story, all of the books point to one person, and that person is Jesus, who is the Christ. Anyway, so we have this genealogy. This is the first of two genealogies in the gospel. This genealogy traces Christ's line from Abraham to David to the deportation to Babylon, and then to his adoptive father, Joseph. We say adoptive father, his legal father, because, as we will hear, starting in chapter 18, Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. 
He was actually created in her womb. A created, well, I'm not going to say he was a created being, because Jesus isn't a created being. He was manifested in her womb. He took on flesh, because he is God. He is one of three persons. There is one God who is three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the Son, and he was manifested into flesh in her womb, which, when you think about God, the Creator, who made humans, he wouldn't have a problem with this. He would not have a problem with this. So, but understand, too, that Joseph still married Mary and accepted Jesus as his son, adopted Jesus as his son. Adoption back in those days bestowed legal rights, full legal familial rights to the individual who was adopted. So legally speaking, there was no difference between an adopted child and a child of birth. Zero difference. As a matter of fact, in in Roman law, uh, when it comes to adoption, your old self is completely erased. You're given a new name. You have what if you had debt before, you don't have debt anymore. Your old self is completely erased. And we can actually get into that in another part of the Bible in uh, Paul's epistles, but we're not going to get into that right now. Suffice it to say that Jesus's adoption under Joseph was fully legal and made him completely part of Joseph's line. And as we can see from this uh, genealogy, Joseph is a legal heir to David's throne. Now, the second genealogy is in Luke, and that actually uh, traces Jesus's genealogy all the way back to Adam. And that is important, too, because The Jews see this genealogy and see, yep, he's here to save the Jews. But a big sticking point after Christ's ascension into heaven, after the day of Pentecost, was whether or not to teach this to the Gentiles. And because the Jews were the chosen people of Christ and the Messiah was sent to the Jews, and so the, the Messianic message must only be meant for the Jews. There are actually some Jews who thought that. But the line that traces his genealogy all the way back to Adam indicates that he came to save all of mankind. He's actually even referred to as the second Adam. Jesus acts as the second Adam who made the right choice. And through his right choice, just like through Adam's wrong choice, we were cursed with sin. Through Christ's right choice, we can be reconciled to God. And still free will exists because it is your choice as to whether or not you accept Christ. So we have this genealogy 
Verse 17 says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. All right, let's stop there real quick. For those of you who are not familiar, again, we have a triune God, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is one God. There have been multiple attempts by multiple theologians to try to explain this concept. But each one really creates a potential heresy. This is a concept that is beyond our understanding. This is one of the things in the Bible, and there are a few things in the Bible, where God says this is the way it is, and we, from our particular viewpoint, our three-dimensional viewpoint, just cannot understand how that is possible. And in those cases, instead of trying to explain something that is beyond our comprehension, we should just accept it. A lot of people incorrectly state that the, the whole basis of Christianity is based on blind faith. That is absolutely not the case. 100% not the case. If it was the case, then I wouldn't be a Christian. Because I am, if nothing else, a scientist. I follow logic. I follow the evidence. If you can't prove it, it just ain't. Okay? That's just the way it is. With me, personally. That's not the way it is with a lot of people, and that's frustrating to me. But that's the way it is with me. However, there are, in the Bible, just like in life, certain realities that we as humans are not capable of understanding. And so we just have to accept them. That just That's the way it is. And the, the Trinity is one of them. And part of that trinity is the Holy Spirit. So you got the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one that is the least understood, I think, of all of the uh, characters within God. The Holy Spirit is the one that is the least understood. But I'm not going to get into There's actually a whole uh, section of theology that is dedicated to the study of the Holy Spirit. And it is called pneumatology. That's, that's pneum with a, a silent P, like pneumonia. P-N-E-U-M-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. Pneumatology. That is the study of the Holy Spirit. That is the, the branch of theology that studies the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit... Um made Mary pregnant with 
Jesus. Verse 19, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away. Okay, he had certain options here. Because this was really, really a big deal in Jewish culture. According to the law, technically speaking, Mary could be stoned. Because nobody stoned to death. <laughs> to you 420 people out there, stoned to death with rocks. Which in itself was a rather unpleasant thing. Um, he could have uh, just rejected her. In which case, again, it is distinctly possible that she would have been stoned to death. Uh, or he could have, again, quietly put her away and quietly divorced her in such a manner that it wasn't public and nobody really knew what was going on and there would always be questions, but it's okay because Joseph didn't bring a case against her legally. So, you know, if he's willing to forgive her, then we'll forgive her kind of but we'll still treat her like garbage. And then, of course, he could marry her anyway. And uh, But still, she would have been looked down upon and treated poorly because, of course, you know, to them, she would have had sex out of wedlock and gotten pregnant as a result. So she would have been shunned for the rest of her life, regardless. Verse 20, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Angel just means messenger, by the way. That's all. Uh, and so when, it, uh, when the Bible mentions an angel, it could, be, it could be multiple different things. In this particular case, it is a spirit being what we normally consider as an angel. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, for he will be, or for he will save his people from their sins. This is really a big deal. This is really important. He will save his people from their sins. So, right there, he's explaining he's not going to save the people from the Romans, he's going to save the people from their sins. Now, one might hear this and extrapolate because, you know, we humans are really smart and so we're really good about adding stuff on to God's Word and putting stuff there that ain't there. One might extrapolate from this, well, the, we're being oppressed by the Romans and the Messiah is going to save us from our oppression uh, from the Romans. So, and this angel said that he's going to save us from our sins, so maybe we're under oppression from the Romans because we have sinned against God. Yes, that's it. And so he's going to save us from that and relieve us from the oppressions of the Romans. See, it's not a really, it's not a long stretch to continue to this, this misconception of what the Messiah is going to do for the Jews. Verse 22, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, 
Verse 23 is a quote, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us or God in our presence. Now, this prophecy that is quoted is from the book of Isaiah 7, 14. What, what we have, have uh, uh, see, we, we broke up the Bible, and so it's in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and, and it is in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And this is, once again, we're going to see this a lot throughout Matthew's Gospel, where he refers back to uh, Messianic prophecies that occurred in the Old Testament. Again, this is very, very important to the Jews and to the Hebrews to whom he is writing, so that he can explain, look, he fulfilled this prophecy, he fulfilled this prophecy, he fulfilled this prophecy, etc., etc. And so in this particular case, he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah here. Um, there is some debate about the term virgin. The Greek word that Matthew uses here for virgin means virgin. It means someone, a, a female who has not had sex. Okay? He is using this word because it is also the word that has been used in, or that was used in the Greek Septuagint. The Greek Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, as you understand the, uh, the, the language, the overarching language of the time, all over the world was Greek, okay? And this is thanks to um, Alexander the Great conquering pretty much the whole known world and uh, making Greek the official language. So pretty much everybody spoke Greek. And then you had the Romans who spoke Latin, and then you had the people living in Judea who spoke Aramaic, and they spoke Aramaic largely because uh, of their captivity from Babylon. That stuck with them. And, of course, there were some, uh, many, uh, who also spoke Hebrew. But Greek was the lingua franca, as, as it were. So he uses the term that the Greek Septuagint uses. If you go back to the Hebrew, the Hebrew word alma, is used. Now, the Hebrew word, and Hebrew is different from Greek, as obviously you, you will understand. Hebrew is an Eastern language, Greek is a Western language, and there is always, uh, it's always problematic translating between the two. Uh, it's very difficult for Western minds to comprehend the way Eastern languages work. And, and I'm not going to get into that, although um, uh, I did minor in linguistics and, and have studied languages. It's, it's not something I'm going to get into. But the, the Hebrew word Alma that is used in Isaiah 
generally can mean multiple things. One, it can mean virgin, like a, a girl who has not had sex, female who has not had sex. It can also mean a young woman of marriageable age. And so an argument has been made by those people who, uh, uh, are critic, critics basically of the Bible and the gospel, that she wasn't in fact a virgin, that she was just a young woman of marriageable age. And so she actually did have sex. And if she did have sex, then Christ is a human, like a, a regular human. And if he was a regular human, then he couldn't have been the Messiah. And if he couldn't have been the Messiah, he was just a really good guy walking around doing really good stuff. So that is one of the critiques. However, based on the way that it was used in Isaiah, based on it, the acceptance of those who wrote the Septuagint of the way that it was used as a female who has not had sex, because it wouldn't really be miraculous if it was just a young woman. And if it was just a young woman of marriageable age, and it wasn't really miraculous, then why bring it up in the first place? Why make a prophecy? You don't make prophecy about like regular stuff. Oh, I prophesy that so-and-so in a hundred years is going to eat a bowl of soup. By the way, it's uh, the book of Isaiah was written uh, about 700 years before Christ. Um, so why would you mention that it was just a young woman of marriageable age? Because guess what? Young women of marriageable age, they get pregnant and have kids. Happens all the time. So it is kind of accepted that this meant a young woman who hasn't had sex. And Matthew, in his gospel, accepts the same meaning and uses the Greek word for such. All right, verse 24, And Joseph woke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin. And see, note here the fact that he is stating, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. There's a lot in this verse 25 right here that's important. Kept her a virgin. Now, if she was just a young woman of marriageable age, and she had had sex out of wedlock and got pregnant, then why put this statement in here? Kept her a virgin. Well, you can't keep someone, a young woman of marriageable age. That doesn't make any sense. So the only reason that that statement is put there is to indicate that she had not yet had sex. And so he kept her that way. He did not have sex with her. Now, another thing that I want to point out, very important, and like I said, not a single word in the Bible exists without a reason. The word until. He kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. There are some Christian denominations that teach that Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life. This is absolutely 100% unprovable and certainly not the case because Jesus had a brother named James who later became the head of the church in Jerusalem. You can't have a brother unless your mother has sex. It's a fact. So, 
And the, the, the little tiny little word right here, until she gave birth to a son, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, indicates that after she gave birth to the son, they had sex and had other kids. So that whole myth about Mary being a virgin for the rest of her life, gone, out the window, doesn't exist. And he called his name Jesus. Yeshua, because he will save us from our sins. Now we get into Matthew chapter 2, the visit of the Magi. This is one of my favorite stories, and I am probably going to be able to fit it in here, so we're going to go with it. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king Magi, Wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. This is a lot of people, you know, this is the story from, from Christmas. This is the three wise men and so on and so forth. There weren't just three of them. Okay? There were a lot more of them. That's the first thing. There weren't just the, the reason that it's traditionally three is because three gifts are mentioned that they gave. But given the political situation of the time, there wouldn't have been just three guys show up. It would not have been wise for the wise men to just three of them to show up in Judea. Again, getting into the cultural and political situation at the time. Judah, Israel, Jerusalem was and has always been the epicenter of happenings in the world. Uh, it always somehow comes back to Israel. It always comes back to Jerusalem. And they have always been sandwiched right in the middle right in between the East and the West. And the situation was no different back then. In this particular case, this particular territory was, it was kind of contested-ish. But this was where the Roman Empire ran smack dab up against their rivals for world domination the Parthian Empire. The Parthian Empire was descended from the Persian Empire. And as you will recall, the Persian Empire came after the Midian Empire, or the Medes. And before the Medes, it was the Babylonians. And who was it that the Babylonians had in captivity all that time? Well, one particular individual whose name was Daniel. Daniel was a Hebrew, and Daniel was made the chiefest of wise men for a long time. And Daniel trained their wise men how to be wise. And it is not outside the realm of possibility that Daniel, having had a lot of his visions from God so that he could deliver his very accurate prophecies, told these prophecies to at least some of these wise men. It is 
suspected and believed that there were a group of these wise men that kept the words of Daniel in their hearts and taught them to those who came after them. And they were looking for signs that this Messiah that Daniel was talking about was going to arrive. That's who these wise men were. They were the spiritual, intellectual descendants of Daniel. And they had been waiting for the signs. They had been looking for the signs because they too knew that this was about the time that the Messiah was supposed to show up based on Daniel's prophecies, just like the Jews knew based on Daniel's prophecies, that this was about the time that the Messiah was going to show up. So they were looking, they were watching, and they were waiting. And they saw the sign, and they knew where, generally, he was going to be born. But they had to check in, because they figured this is a big deal. So obviously, since this is a big deal, all of the Jews are going to be fired up about this too, because we know. So obviously, they should know. So we're going to go see them. However, the Parthian Empire and the Roman Empire were not exactly on the best of terms. They were kind of rivals. Now, they were not at open war, but at the same time, they were kind of political rivals. So, when these guys showed up, they would not have just shown up three guys walking into the Roman Empire. They would have shown up in force with a large organization, a large group of people armed to the teeth, no question. Now, there would have been a few wise men. We don't know how many of them there would have been. We know that there were more than one, but we know that it wasn't necessarily three. And they would have brought a lot of soldiers with them. Note this too. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That was actually an insult to Herod. Understand this. Herod was not a Jew. He was a political appointee. He was somebody that Caesar had appointed to be king, political king over the Jews. See, the Jews had uh, a split system. They had a king, king, and then they had their religious leaders, who were supposed to be the priests, but as I stated in the previous episode, had become the Pharisees and the Sadducees under the Sanhedrin. So, you had this political appointee who had been placed as king of the Jews by Caesar. And his name was, or he was called the Herod. He was Herod. And so this was a jab at Herod by these individuals because they knew that the Messiah was going to be king of the Jews and he was going to be a real Jew, whereas Herod was not a real Jew. So when they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That was a jab directly at Herod. For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
But when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. The reason he was troubled is because these guys from the Parthian Empire showed up in force. That's the first reason he was worried, and all of Jerusalem with him, because now they're thinking, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, we got the Parthian Empire walking in here with a bunch of you know, soldiers and stuff like that. We got the Romans who occupy us, and they're going to have a war right on top of our heads. Verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, and this is proof right here that he wasn't a Jew, because if he was a real Jew, he would have known the answer to this question right off the bat. He had to have uh, his own group of chief priests. He had to have the chief priests come and tell him because he didn't know. I'm not a Jew. I don't know. Chief priests and scribes, and he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. By the way, the prophet is Micah. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. This is in Micah 5, by the way, if you want to look that up. Then Herod secretly called to the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Now, it would have taken a while for this trip to occur, and we now know how long it would have taken. And he said to them, uh, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Now, this is a guy who killed his own son to maintain power. Okay, this is a guy who would have absolutely no problem now that he hears that there's a threat to his throne, a legitimate threat to his throne. He's not going to have any problem killing a stranger's son. No problem at all. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God... In a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And we're going to leave it there, a bit of a cliffhanger, folks. And we'll get into the flight to Egypt in the next installment, likely tomorrow, hopefully tomorrow. Anyway, I want to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please share this podcast out there to your friends and family and those you think it might annoy. Now that I am doing this uh, uh, preaching again, basically, if you have any questions, comments, criticisms, etc., please don't hesitate to reach out to me.
and you can reach out to me best by going to my email, Doc Bryant Show, one word, Doc Bryant Show at Zoho Mail, Z O H O Mail dot com. Doc Bryant Show at Zoho Mail dot com. Email me your questions, comments, and criticisms there, and I will do my very best to answer them if they are sent with good intention. If they are not sent with good intention and if they are foolish, I will ridicule them. Just kidding. Well, maybe. At any rate, you can get my podcast anywhere you can get podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, um, Audible, but not Apple because I will not fill out their paperwork. You can also catch my videos, which are not only concerning things of a spiritual nature, but also things of a political and cultural nature, always viewed through the lens of spirituality, however. And you can get those videos on odyssey.com, O-D-Y-S-E-E.com, bitshoot.com, and rumble.com, but not YouTube because they would shut me down in a heartbeat. I want to thank you once again for listening, and I will talk to you all later.